Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan. For you, hello and good evening. My name is Jay Query on a gorgeous, helps if I turn my mic off, absolutely spectacular May, hump day Wednesday. As we get set, you heard Kurt and Kevin talking about the fact that upcoming it is the Grand Prix this weekend. And then, of course, that means that things shift to the Oval. And we get set for the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And when it comes to Grand Prix, setting the stage or setting the table, so to speak, for the greatest spectacle in racing, in terms of the career of many drivers, that's not actually unprecedented. And by that, I mean there are those that began as Grand Prix drivers, turning both left and right, that eventually found their way to IMS and running the Indianapolis 500 and turning only left. Also, there are those drivers who began in Indianapolis and ultimately found their way to Formula One. But a lot of that took place, even though in the early years, there were Grand Prix drivers that have come over. For example, my all-time favorite Indy 500 driver, and as a matter of fact, Mike Thompson, who co-hosts this show with me and joins us on the program. Mike, I'll begin with the trivia question of you do know my all-time favorite driver, correct? Oh, I do know that one. Yes. <laughs> I, I absolutely know this. the answer to this question. And the answer to that I, question is... Should, should I give the answer or should you Feel free. You tell, me, tell me what you know about him. I know that your favorite driver of all time in Indianapolis 500 history is Monsieur... Jules Gu. That is correct. The 1913 champion Jules Gu. And, you know, not uncommon in those days, Mike. He was, you know, he worked for Peugeot, which came over when Carl Fisher essentially recruited European car manufacturers to come over and try their luck in Indianapolis. And Peugeot decided to throw their hat into that ring. And so he came over and ran. And not only did he win the race in 1913, he was the first winner to come back the following year to defend his crown, but he was also a Grand Prix driver. You know, he ran Grand Prix races and rode in street, well, road course races over in Europe. And so therefore we think to ourselves that the Jackie Stewart's and the Graham Hills and the Sir Jack Brabham's, which we're going to talk about tonight, were the first Formula One style drivers to race in the Indianapolis 500. But the reality is, Mike, that did take place before the 60s, just not with the same frequency. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were, there were many what we know as Grand Prix, you know, drivers who, who raced in the 500 in the early years. I mean, it was an international event. So, uh, you know, yes. And then it became um, – it started to become more, you know, more of a frequent activity, obviously, after the, the Second World War. Um, as you know, that the, the 500 paid points toward the world championship of drivers from 1950 to 1960. Now, the only driver who attempted to, you know, earn any of those points was Alberto Ascari. And he, you know, he dropped out of the race early and didn't end up getting any points. So it, it really didn't benefit him to do it. But he was the only one who really tried. 
um, a couple other drivers uh, came over and, and were interested and, and I mean, tried. Uh, I, I, I don't like to say he was shamed into it, but, but uh, um, Juan Manuel Fangio, there was a lot of pressure put on him by, of all people, Floyd Clymer. Um, many people know who Floyd Clymer is from the Floyd Clymer yearbooks. And if you read some of the early Floyd Clymer yearbooks, he put a lot of pressure on saying, if you're basically, if you're the world champion, you, you know, you need to be here and, and race against our guys. And, and, uh, you know, eventually Fangio came over, um, it, you know, and it really just, it wasn't really for him. And he ended up leaving the car, um, and didn't, didn't end up ever qualifying for the, the 500 did did practice, did, did get out on the track, but, uh, it didn't work out for him. It also did not work out for, uh, the very well-known driver, uh, Giuseppe Farina, uh, Nino Farina, uh, the world champion. And, and his was a little bit different circumstance. Uh, Farina was supposed to drive in the 500, but, uh, his car was, was, uh, basically destroyed in an accident that, that Keith Andrews had. So, uh, Andrews had basically gotten into Farino's car, uh, you know, Farina's car for a, you know, a test hop as that was very common back in those days and got in the car and crashed and, and basically, you know, totaled the car. So, uh, it kind of, you know, somewhat ended, ended Farina's chances there, but, uh, everything I know of Farina, we actually have some audio. Um, I don't have it queued up. Uh, we can maybe get it for tomorrow night's show, but I think we played it on last year on talk of gasoline alley where, uh, Farina actually made a appearance in the booth with, of all people, Freddie Agabation. And it was a really kind of an interesting uh, combination in the booth with Sid. It was Sid and, uh, you know, Nino Farina and Freddie Agabation together in the booth. So it's kind of an interesting group. There. You know, when you talk about those that came over, you mentioned Juan Manuel Fangio, who was, you know, as big a star as there was. You know, a world champion, oh, yeah. the, multi-world the, champion, right? The the guy, the right? guy. He was yeah, the Lewis Hamilton the of his era, and but again, Mike did come over. It, you know, it wasn't like because when you see that Wama Wafangio comes over, and you say to yourself, "Whoa!" Like he came over and made attempts at the Indianapolis 500. It wasn't like, and I, I don't mean this as a knock on him. It wasn't necessarily a full-fledged, invested, I am going for this effort. It was more of kind of, yeah, I'll, I'll see this out. And, and if I'm not mistaken, more towards the twilight of his career. He was, I think, 47 or 48 years yeah. old. I mean, it wasn't like he was, you know, younger, you know, Juan Manuel Fangio. Yeah, I mean, it, this was basically at the end of his career. Yeah, but but to, to your point, I mean, the – the biggest star of that era of, of what we know as formula one racing now. So, I mean, it was a big deal and it was, what was, it was really, a lot of it was born in the fact of the, the race of two worlds where people know that, uh, you know, the USAC stars went over to Monza and raced on the Monza oval. And that was supposed to be Fangio was actually supposed to race against those guys. And it, it really, for a variety of reasons, didn't work out in the way they had hoped. The car that Fangio was supposed to drive, they had all kinds of problems with it mechanically. And if you listen, I did a lot of work on helping to to get that audio preserved. And you can actually buy that that audio, the uh, the, bro- the race broadcast. We didn't even know uh, until a couple of years ago that those races were broadcast. 
so when they were they were broadcast, they happened to mention in the uh, in the fifty seven race that Fangio's car they were having difficulty with it, and some of the USAC stars wanted to delay the race because they wanted to race against Fangio, and they were they were saying, "Hey, let, we could delay the race. We don't mind, you know, waiting a little while because we want him in the race." And since it was being run in heats, uh, they, you know, they thought, "Hey, this is no problem." It ended up that uh, you know they didn't end up doing that. They didn't delay the race, and and Fangio only got in the race very very briefly at the end. So the guys who really wanted to race and say they got to race against Fangio didn't get the chance. So then, you know, he came in, and uh, to Indianapolis, and they didn't get a chance to race against him there either. Unfortunately, Fangio won his fifth Formula One World Championship in '57. That was five years after the aforementioned Alberto Ascari had run in Indianapolis. He did so in 1952, started 19th and finished in 31st. But then the floodgates kind of opened about a decade later. And it all began with Sir Jack Brabham, who came over in 1961 to qualify for his first Indianapolis 500. And during his initial season in Indianapolis, or his first years here, uh, Sir Jack Brabham talked with the voice of the Indy 500 at the time, Sid Collins. Jack, I think our national audience would like to meet you a little bit more in depth, if we can, before we speak with your car owner, Mr. John Cooper, and your chief mechanic, Harry Stevens, over here. And that is in regard to your other racing careers. You are the world champion this year and also were world champion in 1959. From what you've seen of the Indianapolis race course, is there any comparison at all between this one and some of the Grand Prix around the world? Well, um... The actual circuit is certainly a lot different, but it's all motor racing, and uh, motor racing is a pretty tough racket at any time, and this 500 race is certainly going to be the toughest race we've taken on. When you were the cover lad on a national magazine here in the States a few weeks ago, the article that I read said that you raced only as fast as you had to to win. From what you've seen out here, is that good strategy at Indianapolis? Well, that's something I don't know, but um, <laughs> I haven't seen one of these 500 races before, but uh, I think it's going to be a pretty tough race right from the start. Have you received very much advice or help, or have you asked for any from the drivers here? Yes, the drivers have been very, very good indeed. They've accepted me very well here, which we appreciate very much, and uh, we certainly got on with them very, very well, and all the dope that they've given us so far seems to be right on the ball. Interestingly enough, Sir Jack Brabham, after that interview, went on to run the Indy 500 in 1961, and he finished with a top 10, finished ninth after qualifying 13th. That was the only of his four races where he ran to completion. He had a fuel issue a year, uh, actually three years later in 1964, finishing 20th. He had an ignition issue, finishing 24th in 69. In 1970, a piston issue eliminated his race at 175 laps, 175 laps. He finished in 13th. But the reality is, not only, Mike Thompson, did Sir Jack Brabham kind of open the door for Grand Prix drivers to come over again in mass in the 60s, unlike what we had seen with more regularity, as we talked about previously, but it also started a family affair for the Brabhams because he was not the only with said surname to run the Indy 500. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. I mean, uh, he's obviously the father of uh, Jeff Brabham. Uh, who I've always thought is one of the more underrated drivers, uh, never got uh, a win in Indy cars, but uh, an underrated driver, great sports car driver. And uh, Jack Brabham is, of course, the grandfather of Matty Brabham, who I honestly thought really should have gotten more of a look than he ever really got in Indy cars. I mean, I thought he was going to be one of the next, 
you know, big stars. Honestly, I thought I thought he was going to have a great career ahead of him, and he unfortunately just has never really gotten, you know, much of a look in Indy cars. He has the one Indianapolis 500 start, and he he just didn't get the opportunities. I think that uh, you know that he should have gotten. I think he could have been a, a a real star in Indy cars. Yeah, I thought you know. As you call it, you know, Matty Brabham or Matthew Brabham, he kind of went by both. When he first was coming up, he was absolutely known as Matty Brabham. You know, he dominated yeah, the I, road I, to Indy. And I've then, always called I've always called him Matty. He he uh you know, he was always Matty to me. I think he's I think he prefers Matthew now, but I mean uh it's hard hard habit well, to break. He was always Matty to me. You know, Mike, what's interesting, to your point, I think with a lot of you know, you get it with a lot of athletes. When you know them at a young age, when they when they hit the scene, when they are basically still, you know, a young man, oftentimes the younger version of their name. You know, Alan Sir Jr. is a prime example. I mean, Little Al, right? He was Little Al. For, right. oh, people yeah. still call him Little Al. Well, there's not a whole lot little about him, right? But they knew, but people knew of him when he was 15, 16, 17 years old, and he was the little version of Al Unser. But he's always forever going to be Little Al. Same with. It speaks. It's a compliment to to Brabham's to to Matthew Brabham's, you know, accomplishment at a young age that he's Maddie because we knew him as a very young man, and then he came in, and in the road to Indy, I mean, he was dominant uh, up yeah, to Indy Lights. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's absolutely. what I mean. I mean, I I thought honestly he was going to be a huge star. I mean, I really did. I I told a lot of people. I said, watch out for this Maddie Brabham kid. I think he's going to be something really special in in indy cars and it just he's one of those guys that i think unfortunately just has slipped through the cracks and and uh you know it just didn't work out for him and, and i think that's a shame to be honest with you because i think i think he's got a lot of talent i totally agree finished 22nd in his only race that was five years ago and now does a lot of the robbie gordon sports trucks does matty brabham so i mean he's still racing and he's still actually on cards, oftentimes where IndyCar's racing, but he's not doing it in an IndyCar itself. But after Sir Jack Brabham came, then now all of a sudden hey, you Jake, wait and the, and the floodgates open. Yeah, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about the fact that Jack Brabham. I mean, you know, he did he did finish his first year in 1961, but let's not forget that he you know he he could have, in theory with a, a couple of different factors, he could be a winner in 1961. And what I mean by that is, you know, he's driving a car with an engine that is dramatically less power than all the other cars out there. Okay. He's, he's driving a, a, uh, with a, you know, the, the climax engine only, I think put out, uh, it was a 2.5 liter engine. I think they had, they had boarded out, I think to 2.7 liter, I think at the time, well, the office, I think were putting out, I mean, far, far more power than his car was. And they also, they, his team didn't really know how to do pit stops. And so, I mean, he could have finished far, far more up, up the order just with the pit stop situation. If he had an engine with a little bit more power, I mean, this is a potential winner in his first year. Uh, so, I mean, Jack Brabham, as you said, and I'm sorry to have interrupted you, but but he definitely opened the floodgates with the fact that you know, and he showed so much in his first in his first year at the 500, and people said, "Well, wait a minute." See, that's you let know. me, Mike. Let's go back to this for people to put it in in modern terms, okay? Even though, boy, it's hard for me to believe that we're talking 20 plus years when I say modern terms. But if you think about post split and the first cart or champ car team to cross over 
is Chip Ganassi comes over with Juan Montoya in 2000, and Montoya dominates that race. Now, that's not because of the inferiority necessarily of the IRL at that time, as we now know, you know, IndyCar being both of them combined, but the fact that Montoya was, you know, a prodigy, right? I mean, he was an unbelievable talent from the time that he first slipped into a car. Mike Hole of Ganassi will tell you that the first time that he went out and did a test on an oval, you know, eyes are popping. Well, wait a minute. He's doing qual speeds five laps into being in an oval for the first time. But so he was absolutely electric. But that opened eyes where then all of a sudden Roger Penske and other teams are saying, wait a minute, like, do we need to go back and run the Indy 500? There are a number of factors that went into play, I realize. But it's somewhat of the similar circumstance or analogy for people to put it in terms that they can relate to of when somebody goes over like Sir Jack Brabham did in 1961 and to your point runs and and is competitive and is in a top 10 and perhaps even positioned to be better, then all of a sudden, Mike, the light bulb goes off for people, right? And they say, wait a minute. Well, yeah, there's there's more money available in this one race than there was for winning the entire championship at that time <laughs> right. in F1. Right. So there's money on the table. And so it becomes very attractive when, when Dan Gurney then goes to, to Colin Chapman and says, hey, this is an opportunity. Have you thought about Indianapolis? And and Colin Chapman says, well, wait a minute. You know, Jack Brabham finished in the top 10. I, I think I've got a a better thing going here at Lotus. And if we can get forward on board, I've got Jim Clark. Uh, you know, we could potentially obviously bring Dan Gurney along. Dan Gurney's part of this program. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was money on the table. Speaking and of that, that's where I think it, it really became the in thing is because of the fact that there was more money in this one race than there was in their entire championship. And speaking of Colin Chapman and speaking of money, money comes oftentimes from sponsorship and from advertisers. And Colin Chapman comes over, and what happens but Sid Collins decides to use him in an advertisement or a commercial. We're actually going to do the same and taking a quick break, but when we come back, you'll hear Colin Chapman doing a pitch with Sid Collins, and it will lead us into continued conversation about Grand Prix drivers of the 60s to an extent the British invasion. The topic for tonight on Beyond the Bricks. You are listening to WIBC, the friendly voice of Indiana. The next segment of the time trials, direct from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, is presented by Stark & Wetzel Meat Products, the brand that has earned the good housekeeping seal of approval. Stark & Wetzel Meats are scientifically controlled for highest standards of quality, flavor, and nourishment. Yes, you're always right to choose Stark & Wetzel Meats. They're guaranteed good. This is WIBC Indianapolis. Now back to the Master Control Tower, and here again is Sid Collins. Very special guest in our opinion, Mr. Colin Chapman, who heads the Lotus team here from London, England. We're thrilled to have you on hand because each and every year our race grows bigger with the addition of folks like yourself, Mr. Chapman. Well, we're very pleased to be here. This is the first time we're competing in Indianapolis, and we are competing with a car rather unconventional by your standards. But uh, we're shaking ourselves in, and we hope to have a good race here on the 30th of May. Now, Jim Clark qualified second fastest after Parnelli Jones. Were you surprised? Uh, no, I was hoping Jim would do fairly well. I, I thought we might qualify a little quicker, but the uh, conditions here have been so bad this morning that uh, I think he was very, I was very pleased at the performance he did. Your boys and your team have a very tight schedule, haven't they? Could you recap for us what you've done since you've been in Indiana? 
Well, unfortunately, we have a, a World Championship series of races in Europe, which we are very interested in competing in, and we're having to fit the uh, Indianapolis race in on alternate weekends while we're in Europe uh, the other weekends racing. And we came over here in March, as you know, and uh, testing, and we went back to Europe and we did four motor races. Jim was lucky enough to win three of them. Then we came back here and we did our practice, and we went back last weekend to Europe again, and uh, Jimmy won the Grand Prix at Silverstone. And now we're back here for qualifying and next weekend we go back again to Europe and we have to qualify at Monaco for the Monaco Grand Prix. And then we come back here for race on the 30th. And don't you leave shortly thereafter for another trip to Europe? Yes, we then have to get away straight after the race for the Grand Prix of Belgium, which is held in Spa. Since we haven't had a chance to have your driver, Jim Clark, on the air with us, perhaps you can relay to us his comments about the Indianapolis Speedway. Well, he's, he's, uh, he says it's different and uh, it certainly is a different sort of event. Um, he's very pleased to be here and he rather likes the, 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 the type of race you have here and he's most impressed with all the people and uh, I know that uh, we've got a tremendous amount of help and cooperation from all the American competitors and we're very pleased to be here. Talking about Jim Clark was Colin Chapman and of course Jim Clark making his debut in 1963 and Mike one of the cool things about Jim Clark in terms of putting, I guess, in today's terms, there are – it's always cool when you see any athlete in any sport that has a great reverence and understanding for athletes that were their elders and that were their predecessor. And I don't know that you would find in any sport – certainly there are those that would be as much – but I don't know that you would find many elite-level athletes that are as accomplished as Dario Franchitti that have as much respect and reverence for somebody who came before them than Franchitti does for Jim Clark. Oh, I I agree. I mean, Jim Clark is my racing hero. Uh, my number one absolute racing hero is Jim Clark. The Lotus 38 is my favorite car of all time. And uh, Dario and I, um, you know, I consider Dario a friend and um, – I, I bonded with Dario over the fact that we both just love Jim Clark. And I think I've mentioned this to you before, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite Indianapolis 500 photos is not a picture of a car on a track. It's a picture of, of Dario after he won the 500 for the first time, realizing that he's going on the trophy that Jim Clark is on. And it's that moment. And it's that picture of him, you know, gazing at the trophy and gazing at the, the boss relief faces. And he's looking at Jim Clark's face and you can just see it in his eyes that, wait a minute, now I'm on this, going to be on this trophy too with Jim Clark. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just gives me chills thinking of that photo uh, because it means a lot to me, that particular picture. And, and Dario has been a good friend uh, to me over the years. And, and yeah, I, his, his, his love of Jim Clark and, and how much, you know, Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart mean to Dario is really something special in my opinion. And of course, you know, Colin Chapman comes over with the Lotus and, you know, he was the the developer and the engineer that worked with Lotus cars. And you heard him talking about Jim Clark coming over and Jim Clark getting a feel for running on an oval. And of course, Jim Clark himself would go on to win the race in 1965. But in 1963, you know, one of the things, Mike, in reality, certain things that you always hear about in racetracks. And I've heard about it even to this day, even though some of them have kind of been put to rest. But you you never, like, bring or talk about peanuts in the paddock. I don't know why that is. 
Because uh, back in the day, there was a superstition. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about that. There was a, there was a driver who supposedly had peanuts in his uh, in his garage stall or or in his the area where he was working on his car, and then he went out and he had a fatal accident right after that. So it became a thing where you don't want peanuts anywhere near your car. You don't want peanut shells in your in your garage stall and things like that. Don't so even want, you don't be, even want it mentioned, right? Right. Yeah. It was just became you know peanuts became this this t- major taboo, and for a long time, to be honest, no women. In the garages, right? For a long time, that was the case. I think we can understand that that probably was because certain people didn't want to be distracted. That would be my guess. But for whatever reason, that was one of them. But another superstition was you don't want green. Green means go. But you don't want green on a race car because superstition in racing, Mike, has always been green might mean go, but stop before you put anything green on a race car, right? It's funny you say that because uh, even after Jim Clark won in such dominating fashion in 1965, and and you would think put away that that taboo forever, right? I mean, he he led 190 out of 200 laps. You can't do that much better than that, right? But even to this day, the the drivers that that were you know what you'd consider the legends and the you know the the kind of the hard scrabble guys, they still believe in that. Because I remember one time I had Johnny Rutherford sign a photo of another one of my favorite paint scheme cars, the the Gatorade McLaren, the car he drove to second place in 1975. The first thing he said out of his mouth was, oh, hoodoo wagon. And hoodoo wagon is is kind of old school racer code for a car that has green on it. And you, you don't want to have a hoodoo wagon, you know. So, you know, even to this day, you would think that, okay, you know, 10 years after Jim Clark won, you know, Johnny Rutherford almost won in the Gatorade McLaren. Maybe that you would think that green car thing was, was put to rest, but, but the, the, the old school guys, you know, they, you know, those traditions and those superstitions die hard with those guys. Well, the reality is that those superstitions also followed him over in terms of topic of conversation when they came here. And by that, I mean, here you have Jim Clark attempting for the Indianapolis 500 and yet, it was still a question he had to answer. Well, there's no such thing as taboo or taboos or uh, um, jinxes in, in motor racing, really. Um, things don't just uh, happen that way. They're all uh, caused for some reason or other. Uh, in a way, there's no such thing as bad luck. It's, uh, it's all caused by some uh, reason or other, some bad preparation or uh, uh, something like this. Um, and I think that... Uh, no matter whether you're racing at Indianapolis or racing on uh, Monaco or any road course, uh, the basic problems are the same, that uh, we're all trying to get around the circuit uh, as quickly as possible and uh, to get across the finishing line first. And he did exactly that, of course, ultimately did Jim Clark in 1965, one spot higher than he finished in his debut in 1963 when he was second. Uh, But the best part about that is calling it, let's be honest, Mike, how did he say Monaco? Monaco? Monaco. Uh, over there it is Monaco. Yes, Love absolutely. That. It's Love always that. it's it's always Monaco. So we're there. the Rubes, That's right. right? That's right. It's if it's it's definitely Monaco over there. You know, let's talk about Jim Clark because the, the greatness of Jim Clark, yeah. I might I might I'll add. tell you what. I, he he's your guy, right? The the floor is yours. Well, I mean, 
think about the fact that you know we we're watching Lewis Hamilton now, and and Lewis Hamilton's breaking just you know record after record after record, and you know we we're in a we're in a an age where there's a you know there's a there's a lot of stars and a lot of drive. Jim Clark, with as many races are held every year in in Formula One, Jim Clark is still in the top ten in all time Formula One wins. Uh, I mean. He won, you know, over 40% of the races he was in. And he only, this is one of the stats that blows me away about Jim Clark in Formula One. He only finished second in one Formula One race. So either won or something happened to him, basically. But the the guy to me was, he's just astounding. Uh, Such an interesting, complex person. I got really interested in Jim Clark. My, My dad... My dad growing up, his hero was Wilbur Shaw. And the reason that was, was he was given a copy of, of Wilbur Shaw's book, Gentlemen, Start Your Engines. And that got him interested in Wilbur Shaw. The same thing happened with me, with my dad. My dad gave me a, a, a paperback copy of Jim Clark at the wheel. And I was just fascinated and taken with him. And, you know, I mean, Jim Clark, you think about the fact that, you know, had the rules in 1963 been followed, he would have won the race most likely. Um, that they weren't, but he finished second, a great debut. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, and it obviously it would have been a shame had Parnelli never won an Indianapolis 500. So I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not disparaging Parnelli who I, I have the utmost respect for and, and admiration for, but I mean, facing facts, the rules were not followed in 1963, but, but Jim Clark finishes second in 64. He has the situation where the, you know, he has the, the wheel, the wheel issue and, and he, he guides the, the broken car in front of the fans and the fans go crazy for him. And then he dominates, completely dominates in 65, almost wins again in 66. Um, just, you know, and what, one of the things I love about Jim Clark is a story Donald always tells, which was, you know, he, he was the outsider supposedly, but people loved him in Indianapolis. And, and Donald tells the story of there were so many, you know, young young boys born in Indianapolis during that time, whose name is James Clark something, you know, their first, they were born with the first name, James, and his middle name is Clark because so many people love Jim Clark. Uh, He was not seen as a, you know, here's this foreign invader and he's coming in and stealing our, our guy's money. And, and, you know, there's one of those foreign drivers. I mean, it was never anything like that with Jim Clark. I mean, Jim Clark was beloved and, and I just, I just find the guy fascinating. I love Jim Clark. And well, the other anytime thing, we, anytime we can talk about Jim Clark, I'd be thrilled. To Mike, do the other thing, by the way, this is beyond the bricks. My name is Jake Quarry. That is the voice of Mike Thompson. Brad Huber is running the board for us tonight. Um, thank you for listening to it. We are always appreciative. My Twitter account is at Jake Query. That is J-A-K-E-Q-U-E-R-Y, at Jake Query. Uh, I welcome any questions and comments about the show, unless it's about asking me on which device the podcast can be found, because I basically am living in 1994, and I defer to Brad or those here at MS World Headquarters for knowing the answers to that. Uh, Mike is savvier than I. He is the resource that comes up with the audio that you hear and does a fantastic job not only finding all of it but cutting it up for us and listening to it and knows more about the Indy 500 than uh, I'll ever know. So it's always a pleasure. Mike, when we talk about, um, you know, you're talking about Clark and, and, I mean, the record speaks for itself in terms of what he was able to do and the competitiveness he showed here in the 500. And 
the other thing that makes that so impressive is we're talking about years where the lineup and the rosters of drivers that were not only making the field, but oftentimes getting bumped from the field was as stout probably as any era that you're going to find. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think later on, we're going to talk a little bit about what I think is the, the greatest field of all time. 1967, I think is the greatest field of all time. But I mean, you think about the guys who didn't make the 1967 race, you know, Mastin Gregory didn't make it. Chris Amon didn't make it, you know, uh, Pedro Rodriguez. I mean, these are, these are, I mean, you could make an international race of champions, the field out of some of the guys who didn't make the field for the 1967 Indianapolis 500. So, I mean, the fields, unbelievable fields in that era. And, and Clark, I I just think the thing I I think about Clark is, you know, we, we have such, you know, we have such interesting, you know, he was, he was willing to, you know, the thing is I like too about Clark is he was willing to try NASCAR. He drove in a NASCAR race. Um, you know, he, he wanted to try it. He wanted to do it and and he did it. And, you know, he did, he did some of these other things that I think are so, you know, he want, you know, he didn't just come to the Indianapolis 500 and that was the only thing he ever did. in, in what we know is IndyCar championship car racing. I mean, he won at Milwaukee. He raced at Milwaukee and, and dominated a race there and won, you know, so, you know, he was doing some other things here that were that were keeping him a little bit in the in the public eye in, in America. But just to me, just a fascinating guy. And, and one of the things I I find fascinating about Jim Clark, too, is just a, a humble, you know, humble guy that I mean, the first thing on on Jim Clark's gravestone in, in Scotland, you know, the things that are are mentioned on it are the things you would expect that he was the world champion twice, that he won all these Grand Prix races, that he won the Indianapolis 500. But the first thing listed is farmer. That's the first thing there, you know, because he was just this, you know, uh, down to earth, you know, guy from Scotland who was very approachable. And it's interesting because I equate a lot of things, uh, obviously because of my, my vast autograph collection and and Clark is the guy I probably have the most autographs of because I, I, I just love Jim Clark, but people ask me all the time, well, how hard is it to find a Jim Clark autograph? And I tell them it really isn't hard. And and people are usually are surprised to hear that he signed, he must've signed for everybody, uh, because it's not difficult to find a Jim Clark. It's pricey because there's so much demand. Um, and so many people want his autograph. But if you want an autograph of Jim Clark, I mean, they, they're available. I mean, he, he signed a lot of programs here in Indianapolis. He signed a lot of pictures. And so, you know, he gave of himself, even though he was one of the biggest stars of his era. When we come back, the British invasion, we'll call it that, uh, really starts to get going on the heels of everything we're talking about. And that includes a driver who comes over and gets one of the legs by winning the Indy 500 of Motorsports Triple Crown. We'll talk about that when we come back to Beyond the Bricks. British Invasion. I know the Beatles were big, too. But this song. The Stones love it, 1965. Comedian Stephen Wright had the best line ever. Stones, I love the Stones. Can't believe they're still doing it after all these years. I watch them whenever I can. Fred and Barney. Not Fred and Barney, but Jake Quarry, Mike Thompson here talking beyond the bricks. And if you recall a couple of years ago when Fernando Alonso, one of the Formula One world champions to test his luck in the Indianapolis 500, there was such a buzz in the 
years that Fernando Alonso had come here because the reality is, Mike, he was trying to complete racing's triple crown of motorsport, which is the Indy 500, the 24-hour Le Mans, and the Monaco Grand Prix. And my question to put you on the spot, Mike Thompson, because I don't know that you'll know the answer, I certainly do not, is, you know, there are signature races across the world, obviously, but when exactly did it come about that somebody said, these, this is the Trinity, this is the Triple Crown, these are the big three, because only one man has done it? Well, first I want to talk about the fact that we didn't bump back in with the Dave Clark Five. Because, well, I mean, I think we could have come back in with, like, Glad all over. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be the Stones, does it? I'm, not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't no, know I, why. That song to me just screams mid-60s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, that's the uh, to answer your question about the Triple Crown, the I, I you know, what's interesting is I think it's fairly recently that this has been including the 24-hour Le Mans because I, a, a few years ago, I always understood it as the Lama wasn't even in the Triple Crown and that it was the Monaco Grand Prix or Monaco, if we were doing the That's earlier right. pronunciation tonight, the 500, and then winning the world championship. That was the Triple Crown of motorsport. Yeah, that would and, make sense. That was – I always understood that to be the the Triple Crown. And so, um, you know, I I think it's recently that I've actually heard – Lama now not to not to disparage Lama at all because obviously it's an incredible event um and I think I think part of the reason is it's because you know it's a single it's a single event right you have you, you know the 500 Lama and and Monaco are three you know single race events uh, as opposed to the Formula 1 drivers championship being multiple events over a season well and you know so, what's interesting is even if you went with the alternate definition there's still only one guy. There's still only one guy that did it, and that's Graham Hill. That's because he won the driver's title in 62, of course, and then he comes and he won it again in 68, the Formula One World Championship. But he's a Formula One World Champion, and he comes to Indianapolis, and then lo and behold, in 1966, in his very first attempt, Graham Hill wins the Indianapolis 500. Here's how it sounded on the IMS radio network, and here's how Graham Hill sounded after his victory. Here he comes. Down the main stretch, and there's the checkered flag for Graham Hill, winner of the Golden Anniversary Indianapolis 500-mile race. Car number 24, the American Red Ball Special. Okay, we're going to hear from Graham Hill. Again, that's the call from Sid Collins, and then here is what Graham Hill had to say after winning Indy in his rookie race. In London, they're able to hear you right now at this moment. What have you to say? You know, rookies don't win here. Uh, yeah, well, um, I'm rather surprised to have won, but uh, naturally I'm very pleased to have done so. Not a surprise. An excellent run and a fine follow-up to that third at Monaco. Can we expect you back here at the 500? Uh, yes, I expect so if I get invited. You know who was running number two when we finished this run today? No, I have no idea. I've Jimmy Clark, I believe, running second to you. Well, I'm very impressed, and uh, th the car ran beautifully. I had a very steady run and pretty uneventful, except for the uh, mishaps early on. This hustle-bustle on the first lap, uh, how deeply involved in that were you? Well, uh, I didn't get involved, but uh, I seemed to be in the middle of it. Um, I was busy trying to avoid the cars and the wheels and the half-shafts and various other bits that were flying around. I thought I was being bombed, in fact. 
So you are truly in the center of this uh, 10 car spot up here. Well, it appears so. I was very fortunate. Graham Hill was the seventh rookie to win the Indy 500, joining Ray Haroon, of course, in the inaugural race. Everyone was a rookie. Jules Gu, Rene Thomas, Frank Lockhart, George Souders, and Louis Meyer. And then, of course, Juan Montoya uh, did it in 2000. Elio Castroneves did it. Uh, actually, it's interesting because you go, Mike, you know, he was right. I mean, at the time, it was, it was just so unheard of. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get Montoya and boom – you're celebrating the anomaly of it and what happens, but a year later you get a guy that wins not only his first but his second as well. But back to Graham Hill, um, I just think that Graham Hill is one of those that everything about him just kind of oozed like cool and under control. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, every photo of him, he just looks like he's, you know, the life of the party, having a good time, and he's just uh... – you know, he had some of the greatest lines, uh, you know, quips, if you will, uh, when he came to Indianapolis. He's responsible for um, the uh, stalls in the bathroom having doors. I can tell you that. He he demanded that, basically. Now, and, wait a minute. They, now, when did they – so, wait a minute. The stalls in the bathrooms having doors. In which bathrooms? Because clearly he didn't have that influence in all of them, right? I mean, have you not well, been to the ones near the North 40? Well, they they did they did none of them had in the in the garage had had any uh, doors on them. They were so basically, Graham Hill is an American hero. He's British, but he's an American hero in my eyes. That's right? correct. Yep he he did not. There were no there were no doors on any of the stalls or uh, or you know basically you you know you'd walk by apparently. I mean I wasn't obviously around during that era, but uh, you would walk by and people would be you know doing their their business or whatever and. Uh, I, I paraphrasing a little bit of his, his quote, but as I understand it, his quote was, it's absolutely barbaric that if you go into a men's convenience, there are no doors on the stalls. And as I understand it from this was, I read this in Mario Andretti's book. What's it like out there? There were doors on the stalls the next day, according to the book. So, um, you know, Graham Hill's responsible for that. Now it's interesting because if you read some, some articles about his victory, Sometimes you'll read the fact that the person most surprised by his victory was Graham Hill himself, because he really wasn't a factor in the race. And just the leaders, you know, basically dropped out and a couple different times. And all of a sudden, Graham Hill finds himself now as controversial because, you know, at, at your Granatelli, Granatelli believed that, uh, you know, that that Jim Clark was the winner and, and said that, you know, they they scored Jim Clark leading the race. And so. But uh, Graham Hill was your winner. And, uh, you know, after Ruby dropped out and Stewart dropped out, Graham Hill was your winner. Yeah, Stewart drops out on lap 190. Graham Hill takes over from there. Graham Hill, by the way, I think most people know this, but he is also the namesake of Graham Rahal. So if you want to know what kind of influence he had, even posthumously on race car drivers, Bobby Rahal names his son after none other than Graham Hill. You know what's interesting, Mike, in the last 20 seconds here um, – it's great talking about, you know, Jim Clark, Graham Hill, all those guys, Sir Jack Brabham. But we've just scratched the surface in terms of the influence in the 60s of the Grand Prix drivers coming over, which means we got a lot more fun for tomorrow, right? And we have the probably the greatest interview ever heard on the IMS Radio Network coming up tomorrow. <laughs> it's brief and to the point. And so, too, is going to be our conclusion tonight. Have a great night. Tomorrow night again, 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening. It's been Beyond the Bricks.